Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Hosea, chapter 7, Hosea 7. I wish I could give you some uh, funny little story to start off Hosea. It seems a little inappropriate. Uh, the book is so overwhelming and heavy that there are some studies that when I'm done, it's like, I don't know whether to collapse under the weight of it. It's not like I'm transposed into an Old Testament prophet casting judgment on Israel, but rather I think about the application to the modern church, the spiritual state of the church. For that, I have a quote from Mark Sayers in his book, Disappearing Church from Cultural Relevance to Gospel Resilience. I thought this would be appropriate because it's easy to look at an Old Testament book, particularly a minor prophet like Hosea and say, oh, you know, that was uh, great for them, but it has nothing to do with us today. No, I don't think so. Uh, idol worship, we have idol worship today. Churches who walk away from what God intends, we certainly have that today. So there are parallels. And remember, it's written to Israel, his people. So how would God be calling his church into repentance today? That's really kind of what we're looking at. So I, I don't want to try to get be guilt-ridden about it, uh, you know, and I don't have anything in particular in mind to try to hammer over your head. It's, it's not that. It's just I'm trying to reflect what this passage says in an honest way and, uh, and then say, all right, what does that mean for us as a church? So let me read this quote. A little long, but I think you'll appreciate it. The prosperity gospel is garishly hawked by televangelists Whereas we subtly imbibe the implicit prosperity gospel through consumerism and advertising, but also through viewing the lives of other Christians who seem to lead amazing, meaningful, pleasure-filled lives. In a church that has pursued the strategy of cultural relevance, we only have, uh, we only have to troll through our Instagram feeds to find pastors, believing musicians, artists, authors, and activists who seem to live incredible lives. These people seem to have the best of both worlds. They follow Jesus and get to travel, live in cool neighborhoods, hang with really interesting people, have incredible marriages or rock the single life, and connect with the most amazing people. The more we view this, the more a belief inside of us rises. The belief is that if we do the stuff of Christianity, read our Bibles, help the poor, worship passionately, move the sound equipment without groaning, we will get a slice of of the awesome Christian life that the implicit gospel promises. In the beautiful world, there is a point in which many realize that while their hip and fantastic church may offer, the, offer them opportunities to engage in justice projects, a life group that meets for community and meal at the pub and digestible life advice, they can leave the church and find similar opportunities. The kicker is that you can still enjoy all this while ditching the biblical prohibitions on sex or having to measure up to the limitations of biblical holiness or the commitments of creedal Christian community. If you still want to keep your sneaker toe in the Christian camp, no problem. Just pick up a book or subscribe to that podcast by a progressive Christian author who will assure you that you can still be a Christian while not getting too stressed about sex or scripture or going to church. In an increasingly world-focused evangelical church, 
what looks like leaving faith or church to the actual lever simply seems like a small shimmy to the left in which the beautiful world promises that you can have it all. End quote. Ouch. Sayers is observing that the church seems to be getting wider, but not necessarily deeper. More self-centered, not loving others selflessly. And all doctrine and commitment has to fit within this personalized, autonomous faith where the individual is king, not Jesus. I got to tell you, we're trying to move CCC from this stylized, individualized faith to where church culture embraces values that mere Christ and the apostles of the New Testament. I don't have a bone to pick here, all right? I'm not trying to say, we're not all doing this, you know, get up to speed. I'm just saying, this is what the word is for today. It might have some things here for us. But I think it's always good for us to consider our values today to remind ourselves of our corporate identity and culture. So let me repeat for them. If you forget what they are, you can see them up on glass in our hallway. Do the hard thing. We choose biblical obedience even when it means taking the harder or longer path. Loosen your grip. We live an abundant life when we open our hands, our calendars, and our budgets, expecting God to use them for his kingdom. Overcome distractions. We unite as a diverse community to overcome differences through a gospel focus and purpose. Know your neighbor. We build intentional relationships meeting physical and spiritual needs, both next door and around the globe. And lastly, get out of the boat. We pray often and take bold steps of faith, trusting that God will do only what he can. I find these statements challenging. It's challenging us away from a self-promoting enterprise, you know, that captures the minds of desperate attenders seeking individual fulfillment and personal happiness. That's not who we are. That's not what we're trying to do here. Rather, they compel us to make whatever sacrifices are necessary to be countercultural disciples who model a life resembling humble servanthood to Christ. That means dying to self. Endurance, love, servanthood, these aren't the ticket for personal happiness. They call us to something far more. Kingdom goals beyond ourselves. In so doing, our perspectives are enlarged and our lives are made meaningful. That's what this is about. So when we read of Hosea, this is not some exercise of detachment from the real world, but rather a narrative that seems taken from today's headlines, right? I mean, I read that quote And it's almost like Hosea could be saying the same thing. Quit loving yourself so much 
and look to the God of the universe. Continually, Israel forgot God. They needed true knowledge of God, and they just lived lives of themselves. The idol today in America is not Baal. It is this individualized, personal autonomy. That's our idol. We love tolerance. Why? I want freedom to do whatever I want. I don't want these religious constraints to be on me of Christianity. And in every orb of influence, you see this shaking off of constraints and personal autonomy raises above it. That's our idol. That's our idol. I'm just here to say and remind us as we go through Hosea, God has not changed. We are still called to account for our actions and our attitudes. You may not like it. People decry it. And they can say whatever they want. But it doesn't change the fact that we live in a moral universe and we live in a God who's still the Lord of the universe that we're going to be called to account. And I would be derelict to my duty if I didn't repeat that message of Hosea for us today. Not to make us feel unnecessarily guilty, but to truly, with the fear of God, we acknowledge that we will be called to account for our thoughts and actions. Now, if that doesn't motivate you, there's nothing I can say. Because that, to me, is is the baseline of part of the problem that we have here in our society, and in the churches. So, we're in the middle of this passage in Hosea where God is taking Israel to the woodshed, and they are willingly and absently running to idols and prostitution in their idol worship. And they've dismissed a God who freed them from Egypt, who guided them by his law. And now they're saying, now we want to just do, want to do what we want. And if anything captures the ethos of the Western world, it's that. But my friends, that is the very definition of sin. Let's all stand as we look at this passage together. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine, they gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. They shall, this shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim 
is a cake not turned. Now, whenever we see this term Ephraim, remember that this was a featured tribe in Israel. And so often the Old Testament writers would speak of Ephraim as a synonym for Israel. So this is what it means, all right? And Israel is being called into account for them being their own concoction instead of being fully devoted to God. Hosea writes this because Israel has formed agreements, alliances with foreign countries with the hopes of increasing their strength instead of looking to God. Constantly throughout the Old Testament, we see Israel forgetting God. And yet here, God is calling them into account. And carrying out this policy of looking to other nations, Israel offers inducements to their allies. Listen to this passage out of 2 Kings 15. Pool, the king of Assyria, came against the land, and Menahem gave Pool a thousand talents of silver that he might help them to confirm his hold on the royal power. Menahem exacted the money from Israel, that is, from all the wealthy men, 50 shekels of silver from every man he gave to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. Menahem gave the Assyrians a large payoff. In today's figures, 37 tons of silver from the national treasury. That's some serious cash. How are you going to pay for that? It was raised by taxing the richer of the society, 50 shekels of silver from every wealthy man. So there was this mix politically. There was this mix religiously by taking on idol worship. It was also a cultural mix by absorbing this debauchery of the surrounding society. Hosea said, Israel's like an unturned cake. One side is gooey and sticky and the other side is burned. Instead of being what they were intended to be, Israel was a mess. It was a half-baked country, overcooked on the side of depending on human resources, but soggy on the side of trusting God. And this soggy side exposes anxieties, worries, fears, something we're all familiar with. Now, not always, but sometimes we find ourselves exhausted from maneuvering for maybe something like a promotion that we didn't get, trying to remedy a friendship that's gone bad or repair a damaged marriage. And instead of seeing this exhaustion as a way that God is trying to humble me And then we seek him and trust him. We self-manage by manipulation, by cajoling. And we wonder why things are getting worse. Well, we've never truly 
humbled ourselves before God. We've got the words, just not the repentance. Saying sorry is not enough. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Israel gets more tired as they try to fix things on their own. They are like a man who's getting old. And they look in the mirror and they cannot admit that they're getting old and flabby and can't walk as good as they used to. Losing their memory. Hair is going gray. I need personal examples of that. Let's all stand. (laughs) It reminds me of Psalm 32. The confession of David. Remember David was one that God said he's after my own heart. He had that. But when he sinned, he sinned big. He committed adultery. And then to cover it up, he ended up having killed the husband of the wife he was having adulterous affair with. And instead of confessing and repenting so that he could be free from his guilt, we read this in Psalm 32. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Selah. That's a Hebrew word that means think about the effects of unconfessed sin in your life and how it's taxing even to your bones. It's a, it's a load that I don't want to carry anymore. That's the way David was feeling. And it wasn't until the next verse when he gives us a window into what happens to experience the freedom. You know what it was? It was confession and repentance when forgiveness was realized. The pride of Israel was plain to any Israelite who looked honestly in the mirror, not like the old guy who's in denial. Israel was not facing their sin. They were in denial of God being the true Lord. Listen, pride and genuine repentance are mutually exclusive, right? One cannot strut proudly into God's presence to make a confession of sin. Proudly strutting and being in God's presence? No, doesn't fit. In fact, James 4 talks about mourning over our sin, humbling ourselves before God, and you, you get this clear picture in James 4 of There are times when we have to be on our knees, begging to God. You ever done that? You ever done that? You know, sometimes for Janet and I, it's happened for both of us, there is no other answer than both of us just getting on our knees, crying out to God. I don't know the exact thing I have to do here I feel this burden, and Lord, 
we just need you and we're just crying out to God. And sometimes it's a confession of sin. Perhaps there are some of you, the thing that's blocking the relationship is there's been no visible humility before God. How about getting on your knees, humbling yourself before God? That's a good place to start. This is what David was recommending. This is what Israel was not doing. Ephraim's like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to the, their congregation. So in an effort to arrange foreign alliances, Israel could be compared to a dove, which exhibits little sense. Now, doves and pigeons are in the same family, by the way. And doves are easy to flush out or shoot to capture. In other words, they're easily deceived. And is this not true of humankind today? Right? I mean, we try to find meaning. We go to this philosophy, that philosophy, this religion, that religion. And the Word of God says that God makes himself evident through creation and through the human conscience that he exists. And instead of worshiping Jehovah God, instead of bowing our knees before him, we go run into everything else. That's humankind. That's the problem, living dependent of God. And Israel's leadership habitually relied upon their own ingenuity instead of the Lord. And by spreading out a net, God will frustrate Israel's attempt to find outside help. Their freedom will turn into captivity under those they seek treaties with. I often think of that of people's lives. Just, just begging for freedom. Everybody's got to be tolerant of everything else. And yet what they don't realize is that they are building their own cage. They are trapped. Israel thinks they're in control. But in fact, God is going to hold them accountable for breaking their covenant with him. Two centuries later, Ezekiel summed up Hosea's metaphor. We read this in Ezekiel 16.59. For thus says the, says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You've been, you have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. And 2 Kings 15 speaks of Israel's duplicity and resulting bondage under Egypt and Assyria. So they were trying to get out from under it and God was trying to use it to humble them. But instead of humbling them, they were more pride, more arrogant, more obstinate. Sound like anybody you know? Just more dug in. Woe to them, for they've strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they've rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. Wow. I don't like reading about woes, because that's serious stuff. Especially when it's directed toward his people. Discipline is coming. They've lived lives of 
deliberate disobedience. They've been warned, but they still persist. They speak of confession, but they never repent. There's just words, but don't follow it up with action. The text doesn't say the specific lies that Israel propagates, but we surmise from the context it refers to Israel's practical denial of God's ability to deal with them while she's in this state. It reminds me of Galatians 6, 7 that says, don't be deceived, God is not mocked for whatever he sows, that he will also reap. We deceive ourselves to think that God is silent or unable to act when we're in sin. Because see, nothing's happened. I'm still alive. Everything's going great, right? In the midst of our rebellion and sin. And when our hearts are rankled and twisted, when our relationships are torn, it's God's work in us to humble us. He's not silent when he keeps our heart from enjoying peace. And I guarantee you, when you're arrogant, bullheaded, obstinate, it's not peace you're experiencing. You just may win. You may keep your family subjugated, but that's not peace. That's one, just being a jerk. And two, not having the joy or peace of God. Those are two different things. But he's not asleep in that. You may be praying that God would get a hold of that other person. When's that other person going to learn their lesson? And all the while, God's been trying to get your attention. It's not that God has left the other person alone, but he shines the focus on the state of our own heart. That's the part that we can address. Verse 14, they do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds for grain and wine. They gash themselves. They rebel against me. See, there's a wailing that is sorry for the consequences that one has to experience. I mean, God, could you please stop these consequences? Fix the relationship. Change the person. Take care of this situation. But there's a difference when we mourn over our sin, confess our sin, and repent from the heart. The nation's leaders seem to want God to change the effects of their sin, but God wanted their hearts to change, to not embrace their unfaithful actions and attitudes, which were a lightning rod for his judgment. So their, quote, repentance is insincere because they refuse to put away their idols and their dependence on other gods. They continue to turn aside or rebel against the Lord. And this describes many Christians. And we can do religious things, just like, you know, they were doing here, you know, offerings of, of wine and grain. God wasn't impressed. Or they gashed themselves. Cutting oneself was a cultural sign of mourning that was never recommended by God. Cultures did it. Deuteronomy 14.1, in fact, condemns the act. Remember when the prophets of Baal cut themselves in an effort to arouse Baal in 1 Kings 18? 
God desires a deep awareness of our sin and heartfelt repentance rather than just some kind of religious fake out, trying to escape the consequences. And there are a lot of Christians who do this today. You know, I think, God and me, we're okay. I give money. I went on that mission trip. You know, I'm an usher, blah, blah, blah. God and me are cool, even though they're a jerk with their family. They haven't humbled themselves before God. They have this hard-headed obstinacy about things in their life that they're saying, I, I don't want to address. People can raise hands. They can speak in tongues without having hearts humbled before God. You know, walking in unforgiveness with family members, with people at work. You think God is in prayer. Oh, praise God. This is awesome. This worship was great. And then you're unforgiving to a family member or somebody at work. And God looks at that expression. He said, hey, stop it. Okay? I'm not impressed. He wants our hearts. Now, do the worship. Awesome. But, the, but these expressions don't cover up the stuff that's in the heart that needs to be addressed. They were prideful. Let us cry from the heart over our sin. And sometimes that may not, you know, you don't crank up the music for that. You don't put in your worship CD to maybe humble yourself before God and mourn over your sin. That's not all happy music, but it's needed stuff. You know, sometimes with aches that have happened in our family, ways that maybe I've offended our children, you know, I've always told our kids, I will pay for your therapy with me being your father, right? We all make mistakes, right? We all do as, as parents. And sometimes we can just give, and this is not just true in parenting, but in a marriage as well. Sometimes we just give in a quick, I said I was sorry. Oh, why are you still dealing with this? And it's like, on an emotional level, we really haven't connected with the person that we hurt. We haven't mourned over our sin. And what I'd suggest is you get in touch with this and you realize, wait a minute, I've really injured you. And I don't know that I'll ever be able to take that back, but I am so sorry. And, and then you, you grieve over that sin and you emotionally connect with that person. And that's what's so missing in much of our family when we just, you know, teach our kids, well, just say you're sorry and then we're, we're done with it. No. Sometimes it takes a lot more than just saying I'm sorry. There needs to be true repentance. You know, when, when you throw around words in your home to one another or to a spouse, you can't just say, I'm sorry sometimes. It takes much more than that. It takes a grieving because you have injured this person. But we don't want to come in contact with that. You know why? Because it doesn't make us feel good. Well, you're not there to feel good. Newsflash. I'm there to live in obedience. I'm there to come under 
the lordship of Christ. Now, I'm not saying all of life is that, but I'm saying there are times when that is called for, this connecting with one another on a real level and repenting and mourning. Sometimes I've had to do that with the kids or with my wife. And we just have a a real serious sit down because I didn't realize how much my words had injured them until maybe later. And it's hard and there are tears and, but you know, that's what builds trust. It's what builds your love between one another. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. This speaks of how God gave Israel military might and they turned their back on him despite experiencing divine aid in battle. Israel treated God like an enemy. It's amazing, isn't it? It's like you, you can love a person and whether it's a, another family member and then they despise you for it. And God is saying, you know what? I know exactly what that's like. Thus, I write the book of Hosea, right? Willingly devised evil against God. Attributing to God some evil motive. This is done all the time, even within churches. Now that are just cutting out the Old Testament or saying, you know, we don't want that kind of God. And again, it's man. Putting himself above the authority of Scripture. Putting himself above God. Being autonomous. This is the essence of sin. This is our idol. They willingly devised evil against God. God was trying to train them to bring them into maturity. Instead, they saw it as an angry act. An ulterior motive from the Lord. So they no longer recognize God's actions and perspective as loving them, calling them to moral order. Well, when you don't have that perspective, who's going to repent in that, with that perspective? No one. Nothing to repent for. How can restoration take place? It won't. With that kind of view. They need a knowledge of God. And this is what Hosea calls for. And many Christians find themselves in this spot. They condemn God because he's a God of justice. They are repelled that God has created a moral universe with objective standards. And then these same people turn right around and get angry for you somehow breaking their own personal code. Oh, wait a minute. I thought there was no code. Just the one I make. And it could be a whole host of things. Could be racism. It could be a whole host of things. Now, I'm against racism as well. But, you know, that's a a PC thing now. You can't do that. Okay. I agree with you. You can't. But why? Who made that rule? Did you make that rule? Because otherwise I'm really not interested in your rule. What makes it wrong? Eventually it leads back to God had created us in his image. 
all people are valuable and not deserving of such treatment. But nobody wants to acknowledge, I shouldn't say nobody, but the person running away from God doesn't want to acknowledge that God exists, that God created this moral order. Then that puts me under him, and I don't want to do that, so I'm stuck. People just want their own special kind of judgment, one they can agree with. But you get with people, and you sit down, and they're away from others. Most people will agree there are some things that are really wrong, Right? I mean, you know, raping a child, right? I'll, I'll get students in my classes and we'll sit on one side of the room and I'll say, okay, those of you who say there are no absolutes, sit on one side of the room. Those of you that say there are absolutes, sit on this side of the room. The kids who don't say there are any absolutes, I'll say, okay, so nothing's really wrong, right? Right. Okay, great. Um, how about raping a three-year-old child? Well, now, wait a minute, you didn't say that. Okay, that's wrong. Well, wait a minute. So there's one thing that's really wrong. If there's one thing that's really wrong, then there's an absolute. And I guarantee you the list increases as we talk about it. But the fact is, I don't want to give that away because then I lose my autonomy. I don't want to live under a God. It's a tough pickle. There was a murder that happened in New York City a couple decades ago. The Watkins family from Provo, Utah, mother and father with their two barely grown sons, had come to the city for this long-awaited trip to go to the U.S. Open tennis match. So while waiting on the subway platform for the train to Flushing Meadows, the family was assaulted by a band of four youths the older of the two sons went to the mother's rescue as she was being kicked in the face and he was killed in the attempt. The judge, Edwin Torres, sentenced all four attackers to life without parole. It was the toughest sentence possible in New York at the time. And in so doing, he issued this statement expressing grave alarm in a society, and I quote, in which a band of marauders can surround pounce upon and kill a boy in front of his parents and then stride up to the block to Roseland and dance until 4 a.m. as if they had stepped on an insect. These acts were a visitation that the devil himself would hesitate to conjure up. They cannot go unpunished, end quote. Wow. I mean, that's like, whoa. That's a biblical, whoa. It makes many people queasy today to talk about the wrath of God. But there can be no turning away for the serious-minded Christian, no turning away from this theme. If we are resistant to the idea of the wrath of God, we might pause to reflect the next time we're outraged about something much smaller than a, a murder but still worthy of our anger. How about our property values going up? Get angry about that? Children educational opportunities. No, no limitation on that. How about personal taxes going up? Income tax, right? All of this. We are capable of anger about something where we feel this kind of rage. 
Even the atheist feels this. Because there are some things that are really wrong. But we are fickle. We are finite. But there is a God of the universe who's completely objective, completely holy, not prone to these emotional flare-ups, doesn't take temper tantrums, and he has this knowledge and character that's completely against evil, and he will make matters right. I think one of the things that Hosea may be declaring is, we are not in a position to judge God. We are not in a position to judge his word. It's better to trust him for his judgments being right and true and just leave it at that. They return but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. They shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. So the political leaders turn to idols rather than to Jehovah God. They're like a bow. That means that they, they, they looked fine. The bow looks good, but it's defective. It never hits its intended target. The leaders of Israel curse God even though they're under the covenant. They don't achieve the covenant. Even though he'd intervened for them, got them out of bondage, gave them the law, they've continued to misuse his blessings for their own ends. And their relationship with Egypt and Assyria is going to be a reminder of their consequence for sin. And I look at this passage, and I just think, how are we supposed to respond to this? I mean, there, there may be some that feel stuck spiritually. Um, maybe you're cynical. Maybe you're cold in your relationship with God. Here's my message to you, and I think it's why Hosea was written. God still loves you. God still pursues you. I mean, why did he write this book? Admit your sin, but I'm still there. I still love you. And remember the backdrop of that? Hosea's wife prostituting herself, and I still want you to love her. That is the picture of God with Israel. God was still reaching out to Israel in the midst of her rebellion. So the invitation is for us to come before God humbly, to mourn when we need to mourn, praise when we need to praise him. But be honest with him. And he's ready to forgive. He is, he is so eager to restore the fellowship. Right? Look at it like this. Let's say we have three buckets. The one bucket is our freedom. We're made in the image of God. We have moral responsibility. We have the freedom to choose. The Western mindset, that's they're all about freedom, right? And it overflows. It takes over the other buckets to where Everything is about my personal autonomy, my own independence. I get to do what I want. The other two buckets are community and meaning. 
So in other words, if I'm to experience community and have meaning, you know what that means? I have to tamp down this freedom. I have to die to self. I don't get to do everything I want to do. You know what? When a mother changes the dirty diaper of her baby, is that what she loves to do? She does it because she loves that baby. She sacrifices her own desires and passions in order to attend the baby. Any marriage that lasts, love is not just a romantic feeling where I do what I want. There are opportunities of self-sacrifice in order for the marriage to truly work, right? If I want to have a relationship with other people in my life, there has to be forgiveness, not just doing what I want. It's dying to self. The only way that a community can be a community is that we learn to die to ourselves, and it's not just about the individual. The only way that we can experience meaning is to die to self, participate in the mission that God has us on. And there we find the greatest fulfillment possible, right? It's just like Hosea, what's happening with Israel. If, if I'm worried about my rights, worried about you know, my freedom, how am I going to wash somebody's feet and serve them? How am I going to love when I don't feel like it? It's not that God doesn't want our heart engaged and doesn't want us to attend to our passions. I'm not saying that at all. It's not like this cold fish approach. It's just that those, those passions are not leading the train. That my first obligation is worship and obedience to my Heavenly Father. Let's pray.